happy hour. I'm Mallory. And I'm Ashley. And here we are with episode, what is it, 17? Yes. Wow, that's crazy. Yes. So it's been a, we took a little bit of a break. Um, we had traveling to do. We we did. I went to Washington, D.C. just for like four days. But where did you go? Well, I went, you went to... Yeah, Chicago. I went to Chicago for work and only for maybe like two nights. But yeah, Chicago is cool, you know? I've never been to Chicago. In Washington, D.C., we found this on Google Maps. It was it said it was a beer garden. And I figured it was just like some restaurant mm -hmm. type thing. But it was actually like a fucking garden. Oh. It was and totally outdoors, plants everywhere, and it was really cool because you could order from your table and they would bring you your drink within like five seconds. That's amazing. It was the best. We went there twice because it was so, <laughs> it's like the perfect place. Remember, what was it called? <laughs> it was called Wonder Garden. Ooh, I love that. Yeah. It was really cool. I think so. I saw a picture. Did you post a picture while you were there? Mm -hmm. Were there dogs there? Yeah, there were dogs there, Okay, too. I was, like, wondering if it was, like, a dog park slash beer garden, because sometimes... I mean, I know in Chattanooga they have something like that, oh, which okay. is a great idea. Overheard a lot of aspiring politicians. Oh, God. <laughs> like, every young person that lives in Washington, D.C. is, like, probably going to school for political science and... Well, can they save us? I don't know. I don't know. I hope so, because... <laughs> did you hear about the latest and sure greatest did. news about... How could I not? Yeah. How we're moving backwards yes. 100 years and basically losing rights? That's pretty cool. Yeah. And if you have a medical necessity for an abortion, guess what? You get to die. Is that true, though? <laughs> I like, don't know. <laughs> I mean, I keep seeing that, but like, I'm wondering, is that true? Because if so, I think we're going to just have to move to Canada. Yeah. <laughs> because otherwise I'm not having sex anymore. Right? Not that I'm not that I'm having sex. Don't I've never had sex before, guys. <laughs> Mom and dad. <laughs> Mom and dad. I think they know how Adrian got here. <laughs> uh it was uh Mr. Dr. Klein. He did it. <laughs> oh god. Anyway, yeah, because I don't know the specifics about that. That is one thing I'm curious about as well. Um, but people always bring up, like, what if you're raped or it's incest or it's a medical emergency? What if you don't want to be pregnant? How about that? Yeah. Hey, like, well, guys, is that a valid reason? Not to Christians. <laughs> a girl on Christians. my Facebook, I was like, how do I know her? And then I remembered that when I was trying to find, like, more friends. I did Bumble BFF and I actually found a couple of really good friends on there. But I added this one girl on Facebook and I never ended up meeting up with her. But she, I'm really glad I didn't because she was like posting all this stuff about like how it was good that mm -hmm. they made this decision and stuff. And I was just like, you know what? I'm going to just unfriend. We've never met. Yeah. I don't need to read that. Yeah. Yeah. I've resisted the urge. For like, you know, half my family and <laughs> oh my god, um, everyone I like used to go to church with and school That's with. crazy, but why do you care? Just don't have an abortion if you don't believe in it. Exactly. Well, these are the same people that were saying, don't force me to get a vaccine. Don't force me to yeah. wear a mask. Like, okay, 
my body, my choice, but now it's it's not okay. Also, like, like if you ban abortions, you're just banning safe abortions. You're not exactly people are just they're gonna still get abortion. <laughs> like, yes. That's not gonna change. And we already have a very high maternal death rate. Like it's yeah. not good. It's really depressing. Like I almost don't feel anything about it, like because it's so surreal and I can't even fully grasp mm. that this is a reality. So I just choose not to think about it. I was like looking at the the map of places that it was, you know, likely to stay legal. Mm-hmm. I don't want to move to any of those states. <laughs> I haven't really looked into it at all because I was too busy trying to finish this story I'm about to tell you. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's crazy. It is crazy. So our hearts go out to all the ladies out there. We're yep. there with you. And I'm trying not to look at my neighbor through the window who's about to take a dump. Ashley, you're not allowed to mention your neighbor in the bathroom on this podcast ever again. Oh, I totally forgot about that. I'm not allowed <laughs> to talk about what I want on my podcast. No, you can't. Do you have any other life updates or? Just um, Gabby Petito update. Mm-hmm. They released the pages of Brian Laundrie's notebook. That they found, I guess, they found that with him, like, when they found him, they right? They found it next to his skeletal remains. Yeah. I've uh, been waiting for this for so long, Mallory. I know. I didn't think they would ever release it. I, I didn't was think a surprise to me. And then it just popped up on my Facebook, and I was like, e- e- excuse me? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, excuse me? <laughs> oh, my God. So, essentially, it's a confession. It seems like a load of BS to me. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. he basically explains that he heard Gabby, like, she, he heard her scream or something. They were at the creek, Spread Creek or whatever, wherever they were. And he said that he could barely see her. He couldn't couldn't find her for a moment. And then he found her breathing, breathing heavily, like, gasping his name. And she was freezing cold. And she was soaking wet. And... She started, like, shaking and stuff and saying that she was in a lot of pain. He, like, what did he say? He didn't know how far the car might be away from them, so he tried to start a fire. And basically, he just says that she was shaking violently. Her feet hurt. Her wrist hurt. She had a small bump on her forehead that eventually got larger. She was freezing and then begging for an end to her pain. Brian decided that instead of getting to the car and taking her to the ER mm-hmm. or, you know, or whatever. Even calling 911. Yeah, calling 911. Brian Inton, our boy, yeah. said that there is like perfect cell reception there. Oh my God. Yeah, so instead of doing any of that, he decided to choke her and strangle her to death to end her pain. Yeah, I don't think that's. Why he did that? I don't no, know. I don't but think I really so either. Don't know why? He said he panicked and was in shock. But, but if you were gonna kill someone to like end their pain, why would you strangle them? Right? Wouldn't you like put a pillow over their head or something or something that would be more effective? At but killing? also, who does that? <sighs> He's crazy. Oh, I don't know. But then I watched News Nation last night with Brian Inton, and apparently there was a letter that. Roberta Laundrie wrote to Brian and it said burn after reading on it. Excuse me? It didn't have a date on it. So that's like the thing where it's like kind of, we don't know if it was 
during this time or another time. But she basically was saying that if he goes to prison, I'll bake you a cake and I'll put a knife in it. And they were like, what does that mean? Like, What? Yeah. I didn't see that. Oh, yeah. my God. It's like, does that mean so he can, like, escape or he can kill himself? Or what does that mean? Like, Whoa. But the lawyers are saying there's no date on it. She wrote that as, like, a joke or something. Uh-huh. Okay. But also in the letter that he wrote, his suicide note, he says, like, this has been a big grief to my family. Oh. And so does that mean that they knew? Yeah. I mean, they knew. They had to have known. Mm-hmm. I didn't even connect those dots. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. The whole thing was so nuts. I don't know why, but this particular case always just gives me the weirdest feeling. Yeah. Anyway. It's creepy. Yeah, it's very creepy. I don't know if it's, like, the environment and the fact that it was so, like, their trip was so well documented that you're... You feel like you are there almost. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the only update I have. I do have a little bit of an update. What? Okay. Um, Episode two, The Cult of Gwen Shamblin. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Dan Greider has released the video that he he had released it, but he had to take it down. He re-released it. It's like an hour long. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. You linked it to me today, but I didn't watch it. It is so crazy. Really? So basically, he is a he's a pilot. He teaches people how to fly, and he also people call him out to try and figure out why planes crash. So he's an expert in that, and he was trying to figure out why this plane crashed because you know Joe Laura and Gwen Shamblin and their like leadership team was on this plane and it crashed into the lake within two minutes of being in the air. He was able to look at. I don't know the technical terms, something in the plane and found that there was nothing wrong with the plane. Nothing fell off the plane. There were two pilots on the plane. I forget the guy's name. His last name's Hannah, I believe. He was also a pilot. And there's no way if one pilot gets confused or disoriented that the other one would be just the same amount of confused. Yeah. It can't be that. So it can't be a malfunction. It can't be pilot disorientation. He says that it was a murder-suicide. And he says it was a murder-suicide because he just lost custody of his daughter. Yeah. And his mental health records were leaked to the church, where he he had extreme oh. drug addiction and mental health problems, and he no is a con artist and oh a, a psychopath. Yeah. His daughter, who was living with him at the time, she was she's a child, she um, shared that... Things at the mansion they were living in in Nashville were like extremely tumultuous. Joe hated Gwen and he hated his mom who was also living with them. And he was like, I'm sick of this shit. I'm sick of this shit. Like he was just done. Whoa. So Dan Grider, like basically, I mean, it's not like you can't predict what happened, but he thinks they went up in the air and he last makes his transmission at like a minute in. And then after that, it's radio silence. He thinks that he shot the other pilot. No way. And because there was a gun on the plane and that the plane went down and he killed all of them. Whoa. That's his theory. Theory, But yeah. he, he claims that it's not possible that it was like a malfunction in the plane. And I don't know, you know? Wow. That's crazy. It's crazy. That's so crazy. That's super crazy. Oh, my God. So if you guys haven't listened to that episode, it's episode two. 
that was a, a good story too. It's well worth a listen. It is. And Mallory also told a story that episode, which is really good. Was that Ying Ying? Mm-hmm. Yes, that, yeah, was that, was really that was a good one. That was a good one. Okay, are we ready for the story? How I'm long ready. have we been talking? Three hours. 20 minutes, wow. <laughs> All right. Oh my God. <laughs> this is extreme art here. I'm back on my religious shit. Yay, I love this shit. <laughs> <laughs> it all started with a book buying binge. I've purchased several books for research purposes, and one of them was Under the Banner of Heaven by John Krakauer. He also wrote Into the Wild, which is an amazing book and movie. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Is that the one where the guy, like, goes out into the wilderness and yeah. for, like, a million years and, I don't... He eats poisonous berries and dies. Yeah. Yep. And it's all, like, it's a true story. So this is a true story, obviously. Oh, my God. And Jesus <laughs> No, we're just here to tell you fiction. I'm going to tell you about a book I read. <laughs> this, is a, this is a book club. <laughs> okay, so the book focuses on Mormonism, its history of violence, and how the religion eventually splintered off into some extremist groups. In the case of my story, the group was called the School of Prophets. But I'll also get into the more well-known Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or the FLDS. Um, And this picture that you're looking at right here... Yeah, I'm curious. ...is an AI-generated piece of artwork that I created. Oh, okay, okay. I was like... (laughs) (laughs) It looks like some kind of, like, death metal band. It is, Um, because I typed in Mormon death... I typed in Mormon death metal band. Oh, you did? <laughs> That's amazing. And these are two of the, the pieces it gave me. I love but it. I just loved it so much. <laughs> yeah. We've discussed religious extremism a lot on this podcast, and two episodes in particular happen to have a focus on Mormonism. Episode three, Susan Powell, and episode six of Lori Daybell. Mm-hmm. I wanted to understand the history of Mormonism, its extremist offshoots, and why offenders thrive within this religion. Also, why do these extremist beliefs often lead to such horrific violence? Yeah. I'm going to discuss the violent beginnings of the Mormon religion and the troubling history of the FLDS. I'll also be telling you the story of the Lafferty brothers, the subject of the true story under the banner of heaven. Our story begins on December 23rd, 1805, when Joseph Smith was born. He was the seventh child of 11 children and was raised in the northeastern United States. Joseph grew up during the time called the Second Great Awakening, which was a religious revival that took place in the early 1900s. Basically, churches were just popping up everywhere. It was after a war and people just really wanted to, like, find something that made them feel whole again. Yeah. This awakening spurred excitement surrounding the concept of religion, and people were urged to explore a personal connection with God. Joseph became increasingly interested in religion by the age of 12, but struggled to find a denomination that felt like the one. He was confused by the competing messages and was eager to discover which path he should take. Something very interesting, which I'd never heard before, it was common during this time to practice religious folk magic. Hmm. Joseph's parents and grandparents would often share their visions and revelations they received from God. And later in life, Joseph would use a seer stone that apparently helped him find treasure. You ever heard of that? No, I have not. Yeah, weird. 
1820, when Smith was 14, he wrote about a vision he experienced while he was praying in the woods near his home. He wrote that God and Jesus Christ appeared to him and told him his sins were forgiven and that all contemporary churches had turned aside from the gospel. He shared this vision with a preacher who basically shut him down. Three years later, Smith reported that while praying, he was visited by an angel called Moroni. This angel revealed the location of a buried book made of golden plates. They reportedly were hidden by a hill that was near his home. Joseph made several attempts to find this book, but always came back empty-handed. In 1827, seven years after his initial vision and when Joseph was 21, he married his first wife, Emma Hale. Nine months later, Joseph made his last trip to the hill with Emma by his side. It was on this trip that Joseph would discover the book of golden plates. He said the angel commanded him not to show the plates to anyone else, but to translate them and publish their translation. Smith said the translation was a religious record of Middle Eastern indigenous Americans and were engraved in an unknown language called Reformed Egyptian. Joseph, of course, had the ability to read and translate the plates. Yeah, I'm sure those plates existed. Yeah, but you know how he did? With special magical glasses. Oh my god. I have either read about or heard. I remember learning about Mormonism in high school, but I've always just thought this is just total BS. Yeah? Total BS. Over the next couple years, Joseph Smith dictated the translation to three scribes, Martin Harris, Oliver Cowdery, and David Whitmer. Although Smith had previously refused to show the plates to anyone, he decided to show them to his three scribes. These men, known collectively as the Three Witnesses, signed a statement stating that they had been shown the golden plates by an angel and that the voice of God had confirmed the truth of their translation. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot to mention the drink of the night. Oh, damn. I'm going to go ahead and do that. Yeah. The drink of the night, guys, so sorry to interrupt, <laughs> is a Chardonnay called Cupcake Butter Kiss. It's Butter Kiss. <laughs> Chardonnay from some Sonoma, California. Butt Kissed. <laughs> Butt Kissed. And I chose this beverage tonight because it's white and from the West. Much <laughs> like Mormons. Because <laughs> I couldn't come up with anything better than that. <laughs> white and from the west that's completely accurate later a group of eight witnesses composed of male members of the whitmer and smith families issued a statement that they had been shown the golden plates by smith according to smith the angel moroni took back the plates once smith finished using them convenient because i think everyone would love to see these plates yeah and the completed work was called the book of mormon it was published in March of 1830. Very soon after, Smith and his followers officially organized the Church of Christ. Not everyone was on board, though, and the church faced constant threats of mob violence by those in opposition. Is that the same as the modern Church of Christ? Because there is a Church of Christ denomination um, now. I don't think... I don't think so. Okay. Maybe they just hadn't come up with their full name, the Church of... Jesus Day, Jesus Saturday, 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 Saturday nights. Saturday nights. 
that killed oh me, but it did. God. Oh my god. Woo! <laughs> okay. Joseph Smith also had to figure out how to handle his church members who claimed that they too were having divine revelations. His solution? Smith had his own revelation that he was the prophet and only he had the ability to receive doctrine. Sounds familiar. It's well, just, yeah, it's all familiar. You yeah. Know? That did the trick, and soon after, he sent members off on missions to proselytize Native Americans. He also instructed Oliver Cowdery, one of his scribes who was trying to get all up in his prophet shit, to leave and find the new Jerusalem. Smith traveled from state to state converting people to Mormonism and eventually found himself in the New Jerusalem. Uh, Wait. (laughs) So he sent one guy out to go find the New Jerusalem. He was basically just telling him to get lost. (laughs) And then he found that. Okay. All right. I gotcha. So the New Jerusalem was in Jackson County, Missouri. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Never been there, but I guess it's got to be nice. Yeah. An anti-Mormon mob found Smith, beat him unconscious, tarred and feathered him, and left him for dead. Damn. The people of Jackson County resented the Mormons for political and religious reasons. Smith and his people experienced a lot of violence from communities where he settled. They did not appreciate him bringing this way of life into their community. Joseph's mission to spread Mormonism and have power within these communities created tons of drama. Political and religious differences between the people of Missouri and the new Mormon settlers raised tensions as their presence did every place they tried to settle. People back then were not as accommodating of newcomers, obviously. By this time, Smith's experiences with mob violence led him to consider creating their own militia-esque group to combat violence toward Mormonism. Hmm. Around June 1838, recent convert Samson Avard formed a covert organization called the Danites to intimidate Mormon dissenters and oppose anti-Mormon militia units. After Rigdon delivered a sermon that implied dissenters had no place in the Mormon community, the Danites forcibly expelled them from the county. In a speech given at the town's 4th of July celebration, Rigdon declared that Mormons would no longer tolerate persecution by the people of Missouri and spoke of a war of extermination if Mormons were attacked. Smith endorsed the speech and many non-Mormons understood it to be a threat. The non-Mormons spread anti-Mormon rhetoric in newspapers and in the 1838 election campaign speeches. On August 6, 1838, non-Mormons in Gallatin tried to prevent Mormons from voting and the Election Day scuffles initiated the 1838 Mormon War. Have you ever heard of that? I've never heard of I've the never Mormon of War. a lot of this stuff. It's crazy. That is crazy. Non-Mormon vigilantes raided and burned Mormon farms, while Danites and other Mormons pillaged non-Mormon towns. In the Battle of Crooked River, a group of Mormons attacked the Missouri State Militia, assuming that they were an anti-Mormon vigilante group. Governor Lilburn Boggs then ordered that the Mormons be exterminated or driven from the state. A Mormon massacre would take place on October 30th, 1938. The anti-Mormon militia rode into the community. Alerted to the militia's approach, most of the Latter-day Saint women and children fled into the woods to the south, while most of the men headed to the blacksmith shop, which was like a log cabin structure with widely spaced logs, if you can imagine that. This building was the last place you'd want to hide if people with guns were looking for you, due to the widely spaced logs. Yeah, (laughs) like... 
Like spaces in yeah. between the logs. Yes. I gotcha. This building left the Mormons vulnerable to attack. The shop became a death trap. They fired seven rounds, making upwards of 1,600 shots during the attack of Hans Mill. The attack lasted 30 to 60 minutes. After the initial attack, several of those who had been wounded or had surrendered were shot dead, some even hacked with scythes. That's crazy. Yeah. I had never heard of this. There's more massacres to come. What? Guys, this history won't take too long, so just bear with me. I know it's not... It might be interesting to you, but maybe not. It's interesting to me. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Members of the militia entered the shop and found 10-year-old Sardius Smith, 7-year-old Alma Smith, and 9-year-old Charles Merrick hiding inside the cabin. A militia man known as Glaze of Carroll County... Glaze of Carroll <laughs> County. <laughs> a militia man known as Glaze of Carroll County killed Sardius when he put his musket against Sardius's skull and blew off the top of his head. Oh my god. The group justified the killing by saying, Nitz will make lice, and if he had lived, he would have become a Mormon. A ten-year-old boy. Oh my god. Several other bodies were mutilated while... Many women were assaulted. Houses were robbed, wagons, tents, and clothing were stolen, and horses and livestock were driven off, leaving the surviving women and children destitute. Ugh. Look, I may not agree with Mormonism, but holy shit, that's horrible. Yeah. I would never kill anyone. Me either. The following day, the Latter-day Saints surrendered to 2,500 state troops and agreed to forfeit their property and leave the state. Smith was immediately brought before a military court, accused of treason, and sentenced to be executed the next morning. Alexander Donifan, who was Smith's former attorney and brigadier general in the Missouri militia, refused to carry out the order, and Smith was then sent to a state court for a preliminary hearing where several of his former allies testified against him. Smith and five others were charged with overt acts of treason and transferred to the jail at Liberty, Missouri to await trial. While Joseph Smith was in jail, Brigham Young, the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, rose to prominence when he organized the move of about 14,000 Mormon refugees to Illinois and eastern Iowa. The Brigham Young. The Brigham Young. Wow. On April 6, 1839, after a grand jury hearing in Davis County, Smith and his companions escaped custody. So was that little boy that was, his last name was Smith, related to Joseph Smith? That got his head blown off? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. I mean, it is a common last name. Yeah. Years later, in 1841, Smith began revealing the doctrine of plural marriage to a few of his closest male associates. Oh boy. Few had claimed that Smith had proposed marriage to their wives. Wow. Which is so scandalous. That's, so Joseph Smith had proposed marriage to other people's wives. Yes. That's what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) Because that's holy. Yikes. Yikes, brother. Smith excommunicated these followers, and they wound up creating a competing church and filed indictments against Smith for perjury and polygamy. They also created a newspaper that attacked Smith and his practice of polygamy, insinuating that he was using religion as an excuse to to seduce and marry unassuming women, which I don't disagree with. 
After the first issue of the paper was published, the press was deemed a public nuisance and destroyed, a decision that Smith proudly backed. This incited yet another mob attack. Joseph Smith was arrested for inciting a riot. Lots of arrests, lots of mobs. Yeah, this is so much more violent than I yeah, thought. I know. I never knew there was so much mobs, yeah. riots, things of that nature. Yeah. Man, Mormons really pissed people off. They really did. People didn't like them. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about it, traditional Christianity was yeah. completely different. It yes. Was- they probably thought they were blasphemers and... Mm-hmm. On June 27, 1844, another armed mob stormed the jail where Joseph was held. He was shot multiple times before falling out the window, crying, Oh, Lord, my God! <laughs> That's probably how he said it. <laughs> oh, Lord, my God! He died shortly after hitting the ground, but was shot several more times before the mob dispersed. Five men were later tried for Smith's murder, but were all acquitted. Wow. Because no one cares. Because no one cares. That's what I was thinking. Like, <laughs> oh, it was a Mormon you killed. It's fine. You're good. It was very, like, you're with him or you're against him. After his death, there were two camps, as I said. Mm-hmm. One portrayed Smith as a religious fanatic. Conversely, within Mormonism, Smith was remembered first and foremost as a prophet, martyred to seal the testimony of his faith. of Mormons had no clue that Joseph had married more than one wife. They weren't aware of Joseph's teachings that plural marriage was crucial to gain entry into the kingdom of heaven. Emma Smith, his first wife, and many other heads within the church who knew about the doctrine despised the idea of plural marriage and wanted to find a successor who would revoke the doctrine before it took off. Emma warned if the next prophet was not a member of the church that she approves of, that she would do as much damage to the church as she could. Wow. Alternatively, there was a pro-polygamy camp that included Brigham Young. They wanted to keep plural marriage so that they could keep their wives. If you know anything about Mormonism, you would know how that turned out. Brigham Young was chosen as the next leader. Polygamy would soon be introduced to the Mormon faith. Crazy to think that if a different leader was chosen, Mormonism would have never been associated with plural marriage. Yeah. Oh, my God. Because it was actually really close. Um, A descendant of Smith's was actually really, people were really considering him to be the next prophet. Oh. And Brigham Young was on, um, he was on a mission. I was about to say, he was out of town. (laughs) He was on a mission somewhere else, and he didn't even hear about Joseph Smith's death until, like, days later, and he just happened to stroll on in when they were trying to find the next prophet. So if he had just, like, stayed one day later, he He would have never been That's crazy. And he wouldn't have a whole ass university (laughs) named after him. (laughs) A whole ass university. Brigham ended up moving the church to Salt Lake City, Utah, which at the time was part of Mexico. What? Mm-hmm. Wow, I really don't know my geography history. <laughs> I didn't know that either. That's crazy. There's a lot of crazy history. I didn't know how much Mormons were involved in U.S. history. Like, the hell? What the hell? Young arrived in Salt Lake Valley on July 24th, 1847, a date now recognized as Pioneer Day in Utah. Mm -hmm. I think I've seen a calendar with Pioneer Day on it before. (laughs) That is a major holiday for Mormons. That's crazy. Okay. 
I actually didn't know how involved Brigham Young and Mormonism was in our country and why Utah was like the Mecca for Mormons. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that Young was very much involved in Utah becoming a territory. He even named the capital and was governor. What? I had no clue. Yeah. Young supported slavery and its expansion into Utah and led the efforts to legalize and regulate slavery in the 1852 Act in Relation to Service, based on his beliefs on slavery. Young said in an 1852 speech, Inasmuch as we believe in the Bible, we must believe in slavery. The colored race have been subjected to severe curses, which they have brought upon themselves. Yeah. Um, Mormons... I can't remember exactly, but I remember watching a video in my comparative religions class about, it was an animated film about Mormonism, but I remember that people with dark skin were considered bad. They're like Satan's, I don't know. I don't know. I don't even want to say the things that they believe, honestly, but um, FLDS still believes that. The The fundamental Yeah. God. Seven years later, in 1859, Young stated in an interview with the New York Tribune that he considered slavery a divine institution not to be abolished. Young was known for his priesthood ban on black men, something that was in place until 1978. Oh my god! And as I said, I don't even want to read his commentary on the subject because it's so disgusting. Wow. Young was also known for a controversial teaching called the Doctrine of Blood Atonement. Basically, that means those who committed sins could not atone for their sins unless they were sacrificed and their blood was shed on the ground. What? The LDS Church has formally repudiated this doctrine as early as 1889. This teaching is a key part of the story. But his biggest claim to fame was introducing polygamy into the Mormon faith. In 1853, Young made the church's first official statement on the subject since the church had arrived in Utah. Young acknowledged that the doctrine was challenging for many women, but stated it's a necessity for creating large families. Um, I'm actually trying to keep this brief, but just wanted to very quickly touch on this fact. U.S. President at the time, James Buchanan, tried to have Brigham Young removed as governor due to him obstructing justice or some shit, so Young started a war. They eventually reached a settlement and Young stepped down as governor. But the hysteria caused by the recent war caused the Mormon militia to be extremely hostile to outsiders. On September 7, 1857, They took this hostility out on over 120 people, mostly families, that were passing through heading to California. This event was known as the Mountain Meadows Massacre. They only spared 17 children under 7, and those children were taken in by Mormon families. The Mormon militia left the bodies unburied, but they were later recovered by the Union Army and put to rest. The mass grave was marked with a large slab of granite paying tribute to the slain families. There is a consensus among historians that Brigham Young played a role in provoking the massacre, at least unwittingly, and in concealing its evidence after the fact. However, they debate whether Young knew about the planned massacre ahead of time and whether he initially condoned it before later taking a strong public stand against it. 
Young's use of inflammatory and violent language in response to the federal expedition added to the tense atmosphere at the time of the attack. Following the massacre, Young stated in public forums that God had taken vengeance on the Baker Fancher party, which is what the the caravan was called. Oh, okay. So it was a caravan of 120 people that were mostly like families Damn. just traveling through oh my God. and these Mormon militia were just eager to murder yeah, people. Yeah, that's so. I'm pretty sure that's a sin. They killed everyone except 17 children. My God. So needless to say, Brigham Young is a terrible person. So let's wrap this up with Brigham Mm-hmm. He ended up dying on August 29th, 1877, from inflamed bowels or some shit. Oh, Bye-bye. that sounds fun. I thought this illustration was funny. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's like 85,000 women in a huge bed. and It's in memoriam mm-hmm. of Brigham Young. Yeah, and there's... A um, thousand crying ladies with bonnets. Yeah, in the bed without him. Yeah, he's supposed to sleep in the middle and there's a huge indentation. <laughs> where his bulbous bod would be. Yeah. So at the time of his death, Brigham Young had at least 56 wives. No. Mm-hmm. 56? And 57 children from 16 of his wives. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. I was like, oh, that's like one kid per person. But no, no. that's a million per person <laughs> that had a kid. Okay, we're almost finished with the history, and then we'll get to the crazy story. Cool. In 1890, after nearly 50 years, the Mormon Church writes out the practice of polygamy in order to gain statehood for Utah. The members who continued to practice polygamy were excommunicated. After the formal abandonment of plural marriage by the LDS Church, many members around Short Creek and elsewhere continued and even solemnized plural marriages. In 1904, the LDS Church issued the Second Manifesto and eventually excommunicated those who continued to solemnize or enter into new plural marriages. Short Creek soon became a gathering place for polygamist former members of the LDS Church. In 1935, the LDS Church excommunicated the Mormon residents of Short Creek who refused to sign an oath renouncing polygamy. Following this, John Y. Barlow began to lead a group of Mormon fundamentalists who were dedicated to preserving the practice of plural marriage. The location on the Utah-Arizona border was thought to be ideal for the group because it allowed them to Mm. avoid state raids by moving across the state line. Mm. So while the history of Mormonism is extremely problematic, the Mormonism we know today, the mainstream Mormonism, is is not that. Although many ostracized groups and ex-Mormons, I'm sure, would beg to differ. My point is that people I will be discussing tonight are not your mainstream Mormons. The monsters we'll be discussing were involved in offshoots that are in fact designated as an actual hate group and cult. I hope you found this abridged Mormon history lesson interesting, and with the knowledge in the back of your mind, let's get started with our story. But before we do, we'll take a short break, since this took so goddamn long. (laughs) Break. Break. And we're back. Hey, everybody. You guys ready to hear a story? I am. Great. (laughs) Tell it to me. Brenda Lafferty, formerly Brenda Wright, was born in July of 1960. 
She was the second oldest of seven children and raised by two intelligent, pragmatic parents that loved her immensely. Her parents took a more liberal approach to Mormonism, and they urged their daughters to follow their dreams wherever that may take them. The Wright family raised their family in Twin Falls, Idaho, although they did have a stint in Ithaca, New York, while Brenda's father pursued a doctorate at Cornell University. Brenda was described as a very fun, likable person. She was ambitious and excelled in almost everything she tried. In 1980, she was awarded first runner-up in the Miss Twin Falls pageant. So needless to say, Brenda was beautiful. I can confidently say that Brenda was our people. Her sister reports that she could burp the alphabet. No way. (laughs) A feat that took me weeks to master as a child. (laughs) I love it. She enjoyed reading. A particular favorite was the Lord of the Rings series by J.R.R. Tolkien. She could speak and write in Elvish. What? she was just a fun girl. That's crazy. A genuinely good person. Fun girl and a nerd. I like it. (laughs) She was not described as a churchy type by any means. After graduating high school with honors, Brenda attended a couple of universities in Idaho as she tried to find her footing. Eventually, she made the decision to leave Idaho and attend Brigham Young University, or BYU, in Provo, Utah, to study communications. Which, I cannot believe that there's a university named after this crazy racist psychopath. Mm -hmm. I know. That still exists and people still do it. I was just telling Ashley over the break that one of the medical directors at work is a Mormon, and he graduated from Brigham Young. It's apparently a really good school, but like I just can't believe it's still called Brigham Young, and I can't believe I just it's because only Mormons go there. <laughs> but still, like the history of him, like I'm sure they don't agree with it if they knew. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think they care. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know really. Her goal was to have a career in broadcast journalism. While studying at BYU, Brenda joined an LDS student congregation, and that's where she met Alan Lafferty. He wasn't a student, so not sure why he attended a student congregation, but he and Brenda hit it off. They started dating. Brenda had other relationships, but this one hit differently. Alan wasn't like the other guys. He was a returned missionary, and his family, the Lafferty's, were known as the picture-perfect LDS family. Everyone in Provo knew the Lafferty's, but things aren't always as they appear. Brenda and Alan were married on April 22nd, 1982 in the temple. The couple settled in a small suburban town in Utah called American Fork, where Alan ran a tiling business. Brenda's career aspirations were starting to take off, and she was working at a local news station. She had it all. Life was unfolding just as she had hoped. But shortly after the marriage, Alan began to act differently. The man who once was infatuated by Brenda's spirit and independence was gone. Alan pressured Brenda to quit her job at the news station and get a more low-key job at the mall so that she could spend more time taking care of the home. Brenda was not happy with this, but she went with it and temporarily put her career on hold. Her job at the mall would at least provide her and Alan with insurance, but Alan made her quit that job too. He wanted her to be completely subservient and reliant on him. 
the relationship was becoming strained. Brenda confided in her journals that she felt she'd made a huge mistake marrying Alan. But just two months after their wedding, Brenda found out that she was pregnant. Brenda's sister remembers when they first met Alan. The family loved him, and the sister saw him as a big brother type. It wasn't until after the wedding that they began to notice how quirky the Lafferty's were. Fanatical. Let's talk about Alan and the Lafferty's for a moment. Alan didn't have the most ideal family life. The Lafferty's were most certainly not perfect like how it appeared from the outside. Alan was the youngest of his six brothers and two sisters. His father, Watson Lafferty, was deeply religious and also prone to fits of anger. He was a strict disciplinarian and took his religious beliefs to the extreme. He also exhibited extreme violent behavior. Trigger warning, animal cruelty. For example, after an argument with his wife, he took a bat and beat the family dog to death. Oh my god. Mm -hmm. Mm, Poor doggy. Mm -hmm. And the violence didn't stop at pets. He often beat his wife Claudine and the children as well. Watson Lafferty raised his six boys to distrust conventional medicine and the federal government. If he was alive today, he would have most certainly loved QAnon. Oh my god, I was thinking that exactly. (laughs) When one of his sons accidentally shot himself in the stomach with an arrow. What? Watson How do you do that? I don't know. You have to, like, really be trying, I I feel like. (laughs) Okay. So when one of his sons accidentally shot himself in the stomach with an arrow, Watson claimed he'd have to wait until morning to see a doctor because he could not break the Sabbath. Um, what? Is that even a thing in... I thought it was the Jewish thing. (laughs) Thinking of an excuse. Yeah. In another instance, his daughter was suffering from appendicitis, but he refused to take her to the hospital because he was against the use of medicine. Ugh. He only agreed once her appendix ruptured. My god. He planted seeds of paranoia, rebellion, and religious fanaticism in his boys. Watson was also a diabetic, but refused insulin or medical care. That's not good. You'll die. Yeah. And surprise, surprise. As time went on, his health worsened, and the family tried all of the home treatments they could, but they didn't work, and Watson died in 1983. Alan's brother Dan idolized his father. In his eyes, his parents were the ideal couple, an example of a picture-perfect marriage. Considering the reality, seems like a red flag. When Dan was younger, he carried out his mission in Scotland, where he met Matilda, a young divorced woman with two daughters. As fate would have it, Dan ran into Matilda six years later at a missionary reunion in the United States. They quickly married and went on to have four children together. At this point in his life, Dan began to dive deep into Mormon history and took a particular interest in an obscure text from 1842 called The Peacemaker. The Peacemaker was a two-chapter pamphlet written by a man named Udney Hay Jacob, and published by Joseph Smith. The contents offer several defenses of polygamy that were later used extensively by the LDS Church 
arguing that polygamy produces greater marital unity than monogamy. The pamphlet also argues that male authority over females should be absolute and is of divine origin. The writings are shrouded in mystery, and no one really knows if this Jacob guy was actually part of the LDS church. And Joseph Smith later denounced the writing, saying that it was printed without his knowledge. Nonetheless, the text became influential in the development of the Latter-day Saint polygamist movements. Dan began implementing this school of thought within his own household. Under the new rules, Matilda was no longer allowed to drive, handle money, or talk to anyone outside of the family when Dan wasn't present. And she had to wear a dress at all times. Oh my god. Soon, Dan totally rejected medicine and public schooling. He threw out all non-Mormon texts in the house and broke all their clocks and watches. Because they were on spirit time. What? (laughs) He also spanked Matilda if she disobeyed him, and he used that word. He would spank Matilda in front of anyone. His mother, his brother, anyone. Um, that is so bizarre. As Dan grew more and more indoctrinated by fundamentalist Mormon beliefs, he also became obsessed with extreme libertarian ideas. Let me illustrate how this affected the family. In 1981, his father and mother were going out of the country on a mission trip. He left Dan in charge of the family and the family business in his absence. Dan told his wife Matilda that God had impressed upon him not to pay property taxes on his father's oh, okay. property. <laughs> God impressed upon me that I shouldn't pay taxes this year either. That's very common, I feel like, and like I've heard this several times, like in different Mormon type stories. I think Lori Daybell's dad was the same way. I've heard. Oh, God told me I don't have to pay my taxes. And um, Susan Powell, uh, her husband was also like a cheapskate. I don't know what it is. They're like, I don't know. (sighs) Don't you use roads, Dan? I don't know. (laughs) Dan explains, the property was owned free and clear. By paying property taxes, you are basically telling the government that they're the ones who really own the property because you give them the right to take it from you if you don't pay your taxes. And I was willing to force a standoff to determine who actually owned that property. And that's exactly what happened. As the state began the process of repossessing the property, Dan's parents came back from their mission, just in time to save the house and the business. Watson Lafferty, his father, was enraged. When his father died, Dan... Dan. Dan. Damn, Daniel. <laughs> when his father died, Dam assumed. <laughs> Jesus Christ! <laughs> Leave that in. Oh, good. When his father died, Dan assumed a leadership role in the family, and his influence took hold. He became involved in a fundamentalist movement called the School of Prophets. The School of Prophets was founded by Bob Crossfield, or as he preferred to be called, Prophet Onias. What the hell? <laughs> what the hell, actually? <laughs> Prophet Onias? You wouldn't follow him, Mallory? Uh, nope. Bob was excommunicated from the LDS Church due to his claims of revelations 
and his extreme beliefs. This led him to start this movement which he considered more of an educational movement than a church. The group was a polygamous sect that embraced divine revelations, a narcissist playground. Mm-hmm. It also seethed with white supremacist beliefs. Dan introduced his younger brothers to the movement, and Brenda, Dan's wife, Matilda, and Ron's wife, Diana, became increasingly concerned. Ron was the oldest brother, and the only brother to reject the School of Prophets, initially. Ron was known as a very nurturing man. He despised his father because he saw how he hurt his mother. Ron grew up to be well-respected in the community, had an unusually happy marriage with his wife, Diana, and was a loving father to his six children. Ron was described almost like a mother hen to his siblings. He was always the voice of reason when disagreements broke out and was known to always have some helpful advice for his younger siblings. He was the oldest? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Ron's wife, Diana, suggested that Ron offer some of his characteristic advice to his brothers in 1982. By this time, Dan had gotten most of his younger siblings on board with his extremist crusade, and they were tormenting their wives as a result. Ron agreed and decided to attend one of the meetings to understand what was going on and to maybe talk some sense into his brothers. During the meeting, Ron asked many skeptical questions and read to them the evils of fundamentalism. Ron and Dan bantered back and forth, quoting scripture and even the Constitution to prove their points. After not much time at all, Ron took a step back and conceded. He told Dan, quote, What you guys are doing is right. It's everyone else who is wrong. Mm -hmm. In only a couple of hours, Dan had converted Ron into a fire-breathing fundamentalist Mormon. What? I was going to say, oh, he was being sarcastic, but really? He yeah. converted him? Mm-hmm. What the fuck? Diana later told a friend of hers when Ron came through the door that night, he was a different man. Before long, Ron was the extremist of the extremes. No. Ron, you were a good one. He threw away his driver's license, took his plates off of his car, quit his job, which made Diana beyond concerned. Before this conversion, Ron treated Diana like a queen, and now he was setting extreme rules and treating her like a slave. Oh my god. Eventually, they found themselves in financial ruin. Diana tried so hard to save Ron, she'd stay up all night trying to talk sense into him. She even went along with his crazy demands just to stay on his good side, but he only got more controlling and more extreme. He began to talk about his growing enthusiasm for polygamy, which made Deanna sick. Mm, I know. Oh my God. Can you imagine, like, your husband They're being like, oh, I think. Yeah. They had been married for 16 years at that point, I believe. So, like, out of nowhere, just shit, completely changing and... But the breaking point was when Ron told her he intended to marry off their teenage daughters as plural wives. Oh, God. Dana was desperate and reached out to friends, leaders in the church, but it was Brenda Lafferty who she confided in the most. And Brenda was desperate to help her in any way she could. Brenda's husband, Alan, was drinking the same Kool-Aid as his brothers, but Brenda refused to accept this. Alan was refusing to pay taxes, and Brenda challenged him. She ended up having to get them filed herself behind his back. He even tried to stop Brenda from taking their sick baby to the doctor. 
It all got to be too much, and when Alan started talking about plural marriage, she put her foot down. Brenda told her husband that she didn't want him spending any more time with his brothers. It was no secret that the Lafferty brothers despised Brenda. Her intellect and independence was a threat to their lifestyle. Their wives always relied on Brenda for advice, and they did not like that one bit. Ron's wife, Deanna, came to Brenda after being physically assaulted, and Brenda urged her that she needed to divorce him. But it wasn't so easy. Deanna didn't have a job or skills. She was completely reliant on Ron. Brenda assured her that she and the rest of the church family would be there to support her. Deanna eventually worked up the courage and filed for divorce. It was finalized in the fall of 1983, and Deanna took the kids and moved to Florida as far from Utah and the Lafferty's as she could get. It was obvious it was coming, but Ron was still shocked. Sometime after this, the brothers met with Prophet Onias himself, and they were officially inducted into the School of Prophets. Prophet Onias. I'm the Prophet Onias! <laughs> I wear overalls and have zero teeth. <laughs> it is It is really funny, the juxtaposition of... Prophet Onias and the picture you showed me. Also, his name's Bob. Yes. <laughs> he just looks like a country farmer, dude. Oh, God. That's crazy. Like, he kind of reminds me of my grandpa. Who's a <laughs> Was he a farmer. prophet? No, he was not a prophet. <laughs> so, they were inducted into the School of Prophets, and Alan was eager to join as well, but Brenda put her foot down. Defying Alan was the equivalent of defying the Lafferty brothers, but Brenda had no problem with that. Which, Jesus Christ, I, she's brave. Yeah, she is. She held her own, and she didn't back down. She kind of reminds me of your mom a little bit, the way she, her hair. She looks like my mom in this picture. She does. <laughs> my mom has the exact hairstyle. <laughs> Matilda was just as desperate. Matilda was Dan's wife. Dan talked incessantly about plural marriage and told Matilda that he intended that her 14-year-old daughter would become his second wife. Um, no. I'm sorry. You're not allowed to do that. <laughs> That's so gross. One of the younger daughters, named Rebecca, even reported seeing her stepfather groping the teenager's bare breasts. Uh... <sighs> Matilda rebelled as much as she could but it felt like her only option would be to leave without her children or stay and accept things. So she stayed. Eventually, Dan gave up on pursuing his stepdaughter and married another woman. Surprise, surprise, due to Ron and Dan's beliefs, they were excommunicated from the LDS church. Good. <laughs> good. Good, good. Get rid of That's... That's so gross, dude. Your stepdaughter. Can you, like, so he met her and she had these two kids. They end up getting married. And then he, like, freaking molests the 14-year-old stepdaughter and says that he's going to marry her? Yeah. Sick. That poor girl. Oh, my God. After Ron found himself single, he put everything he had into the School of Prophets. He was anointed the local chapter's bishop. 
He was completely focused on Prophet Onias' teachings and began to have his own revelations in February of 1984. His hurt from the loss of his family quickly transformed into a deep-seated rage. He thought long and hard about how things ended the way they did. He thought of three reasons why his wife would leave him. Three people. Richard Stowe, Chloe Lowe, and Brenda Lafferty. He channeled his anger at those three people. In his mind, it was their fault Diana left him. Richard Stowe was a neighbor of Ron and Diana. He was president of the LDS Highland Stake and was involved in the council court that had him excommunicated from the church. Richard Stowe had helped Diana financially by way of the church while she was going through the divorce so that she and the kids could survive. He also offered emotional counsel to her during that time. Unforgivable in Ron's eyes. Chloe Lowe was a family friend of Ron and Deanna's for over 12 years. During their troubles, Chloe had offered support to both Ron and Deanna, but when Ron started acting like a legit monster, Chloe firmly took Deanna's side. She invited Deanna and the kids to stay at her house while she was going through the divorce and helped her and the kids with their move to Florida. Ron's thought process was, if it weren't for Chloe, Deanna wouldn't have had the strength to leave him. So this is clearly Chloe's fault. But Ron's wrath was mostly targeted at Brenda Lafferty, his little brother's wife. She was instrumental in convincing Deanna to leave him. Ron became ever-focused on receiving revelations, just how Prophet Onias instructed him. He'd sit at the computer, close his eyes, put his fingers on the keys, then he waited for the Spirit of the Lord to press his fingers into the keys. Can you imagine? 80s. Huge computer. Jordash jeans. <laughs> Okay. Holy Spirit, guide my fingers. <laughs> First, I gotta type DOS. DOS? I don't remember what. Is that what you do? I don't know. I have no clue what you're even talking about. The black screen where you have to type something in order to get on the computer? Oh, I don't remember that. Oh, okay. <laughs> he received revelation after revelation. Dan watched in amazement as his brother received these messages from God. One of the revelations happened to be directed at Deanna, claiming that if she didn't return to Ron, he'd strike her down. He received 20 revelations between February and March, but in late March, he received a disturbing message that he pinned on a yellow legal pad. And I'm going to read it to you. Okay. Thus saith the Lord unto my servants the prophets. It is my will and commandment that ye remove the following individuals in order that my work might go forward. <laughs> For they have truly become obstacles in my path, and I will not allow my work to be stopped. First, thy brother's wife Brenda and her baby. <laughs> then Chloe Lowe. Then Richard Stowe. And it is my will that they be removed in rapid succession and that an example be made of them in order that others might see the fate of those who fight against the true saints of God. It actually goes on on and on and on, but that is the important part. Excellent rendition. Thank you. Ron was a little scared of what he just wrote, 
and he shared it with Dan. They needed to be sure it was from God, but at the same time didn't want to offend God by not carrying out his wishes. They thought long and hard about it, and Ron received another revelation. God was telling Ron that he was the mouth of God, and Dan was the arm of God. They interpreted that to mean that Dan should carry out their removal, and Ron was the one to tell who to remove. Whenever a member of the School of Prophets received a message, it was standard procedure to share it with other members for evaluation. The school held their weekly meeting on April 9th. Ron shared the message with the members, and they discussed it before taking a vote. Dan, Ron, and their brother Watson Jr. were in favor of the message. The rest of the group said, no way, don't even consider it. This pissed the Lafferty's off, and they stormed out of the meeting, ending their association with the school. Later that month, Ron shared the revelation with Brenda's husband, Alan. Alan was shocked and asked why baby Erica would even be involved, to which Ron replied, quote, because she would grow up to be a bitch just like her mother. Oh my god. Alan responded that he didn't agree with him and that he would protect his family with his life but he didn't warn Brenda or go to the police. Great. In May 1984, Ron and Dan left Utah in Ron's shitty Impala wagon. (laughs) They drove across the West and into Canada, and they just drove and drove and drove for weeks, then months. Dan sensed that Ron was getting agitated. He said he seemed bloodthirsty. They made stops along the way made friends with a builder named Ricky Knapp, who, after being released from his job, had nowhere to go. So the brothers invited Knapp to stay with him in the back of their Impala, just casually, and he accepted. Uh, okay. <laughs> they picked up another guy along the way who was hitchhiking, and his name was Chip Carnes. The men traveled back toward Utah and stopped at Mark Lafferty's house to pick up weapons. What are you going to do with those? Mark asked. Going hunting, Ron replied. Mark knew it wasn't game season and asked what he was hunting. Ron responded, Any fucking thing that gets in my way. Oh, real cool response. The men pulled into Brenda and Alan's driveway around one thirty that afternoon. Oh god. Oh god. Ron got out and knocked on the door several times, but there was no answer. He walked back to the car confused. They drove off, wondering what they were supposed to do now. Dan thought that maybe this was a test. After all, Dan was the arm of God. Maybe he was supposed to be the one to knock on the door. Sometime later, Dan pulled into Alan's driveway again. He got out of the car, and by the second knock, Brenda answered. He asked if Alan was home, and she said he was at work. He asked her if he could use the phone really fast, and Brenda, growing irritated and more suspicious, said no. Dan recalls asking God what he should do in that moment, and before he knew it, he was pushing Brenda out of the way and slammed the door behind him. The men in the car heard crashing and screaming, and Ron decided to go in after his brother. Dan had Brenda pinned to the ground. She was screaming, please don't hurt my baby and 15-month-old baby Erica began to cry out for her mommy. Oh, God. 
Ron asked Dan what he was going to do, and Dan responded in a whisper as to not make Brenda uncomfortable. I'm carrying out the revelation. How are you going to do it? Ron asked. Dan prayed about it for a second and said he felt compelled to use a knife to slit their throats. Dan had a knife in his belt, and Ron had a butcher's knife in his boot. Dan said that God was requesting he use the butcher knife. So Ron slid the knife across the floor to Dan. He attempted to knock Brenda unconscious with his fists, but because of the amount of blood, he lost his grip on her and she tried to get away. Dan managed to knock her to the ground and she fainted. Dan told Ron to get him a telephone cord to put around her neck so she wouldn't regain consciousness. Dan said he was now compelled to take care of the baby first. Ooh, this is awful. Trigger warning. If you don't want to hear about a baby dying, skip ahead like 30 seconds. Dan found the baby's room where Erica was standing in her crib. He talked to her a little bit saying, I'm not sure what this is all about, but apparently it's God's will that you leave this world. Perhaps God. we can talk about it later. He took the knife and slit Erica's throat, nearly decapitating her. Holy shit. Dan recalls he didn't feel anything and made his way to Brenda, where he untied the cord from around her neck and slit her throat. The two men left out the back door, got in the Impala, and made their way to their next target's house, Chloe Lowe. They discussed their mission to remove each person in rapid succession. They broke into Chloe Lowe's house, but found no one, so instead they destroyed her collection of porcelain figurines. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> rude, and stole some petty cash. The ass clowns failed to reach Richard Stowe's home. They got lost, so instead they traveled to Reno, Nevada, where they got a motel room and bought beer and hot dogs. The next morning, they found that Chip and Ricky had taken off with their car. The brothers hitched a ride to a casino where they survived on free buffet food and slept on the free shuttle. Meanwhile, Alan arrived home that evening at 8 p.m. He was surprised that the front door was locked because they never locked the door. When he walked into the house, he was taken aback by a baseball game blaring on the TV. Neither he or Brenda watched baseball, so he was confused. When he turned it off, the home was eerily quiet, as if no one was home. He figured Brenda and the baby must have run out for an errand. As he turned around to go check the neighbors, he noticed blood on the door. Then he discovered Brenda's lifeless body on the floor surrounded with blood. <sighs> he grabbed the phone to call 911, but there was no dial tone. Because mm. the cord was cut and wrapped around her neck at one point. Oh, yeah. He ran to the bedroom to try that phone, but he stopped at Erica's room to check if she was okay, only to find her slumped in her crib in an odd position. Oh my god. He somehow made it to the bedroom and called 911, and dispatchers made their way to the scene. The cops took Alan down to the station and assumed he was the murderer, but Alan convinced detectives to find his oldest brother, Ron Lafferty. They put out an APB on Ron's car, and news spread fast. They found the car in the possession of Chip and Ricky, who were arrested. Information from the two men led them to Reno, Nevada. On August 7th, the Lafferty brothers went to the Circus Circus Casino and were waiting in line at the lunch buffet. 
all of a sudden, they were ambushed by FBI agents. Both brothers surrendered and were taken to the local jail. From jail, the brothers launched a campaign protesting their innocence, insisting that this was a setup by the Mormon church, and there was no way they would receive a fair trial. On December 29th, five days before their trial, Ron Lafferty was found hanging from his cell oh my God. by a t-shirt he had fashioned into a noose. He wasn't breathing and hadn't been for 15 minutes. He was somehow resuscitated and was put on a ventilator where he remained in a coma for two days. He somehow regained consciousness, which Dan attributes to be a divine intervention. The brothers were slated to be tried together, but due to the circumstances, they had separate trials while Ron recovered and underwent psychiatric treatment. Holy shit, that's crazy, actually, that he regained I can't believe that. I can't, like, I can't believe not breathing for 15 minutes. 15 takes a lot less time than that to actually, like, completely They must have worked really hard on him. That's crazy. It did something to his brain, because he wasn't, like, he could not stand trial. Like, he was never the same. Oh. But he did recover over time. The court appointed two attorneys to represent Dan but he insisted to represent himself. Oh, good. <laughs> As you do good when decision. you're a narcissist. <laughs> yeah. Five days after the trial, the jury went into deliberation and found Dan guilty of two counts of first-degree murder. He was up for the death penalty, but two votes against it spared him. Mm-hmm. He was sentenced to two life terms. Ron's trial began four months later in April of 1985. He was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to death. He had an option to die by lethal injection or four bullets through the heart at close range. Oh, what? Which, like, is that an option? I didn't know that was an option. A firing squad? Yeah. I didn't know that was an option at all. I didn't either. And guess what? No, I would not want to be shot four times in the heart. (laughs) I would want to be shot in the head before I would be shot in the heart. Like, what? Well, Ron chose the more dramatic death, obviously. Oh, God. (laughs) Oh, God. Me in the heart four times. (laughs) Represents the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith. (laughs) (laughs) Or Brigham Young, whichever you prefer. Some technical bullshit court errors reversed the conviction, and Ron had to be retried. Like, why are they spending so much time reviving this this asshole and so many tax dollars? Yeah. It's so annoying. No kidding. He had a new trial in 1996 and once again was found guilty and was sentenced to death by firing squad. Oh my god. Waste of time. Ron died of natural causes in November of 2019. Not sure when he was supposed to be put to death, but that's a long-ass time to even wait. Yeah, for real. Dan, on the other hand, is still in prison, and funny story. His cellmate was a guy named Mark Hoffman, who was a once-devout Mormon who ditched his faith while he was on a mission in England and discovered he had a special talent for forgery. I know this guy <laughs> from a documentary. And his specialty was churning out bullshit historical documents. And he sold them for huge sums of money to collectors. That guy 
tried to fake his death too, right? Is that who I'm thinking of? I don't know if he tried to fake his death. But... Have you seen the documentary on Netflix about? Um, can't fucking remember what it's called, but it's about a a forger that forged a really old Mormon document, and oh, that might be him. He ended up trying to blow himself up. And... Okay, yeah, okay, yeah. A lot of these documents were Mormon and sold to the church. When he learned that investigators were closing in on him, he decided the best course of action would be to detonate a series of pipe bombs to divert detectives from his trail. In doing so, he killed two innocent people. Mm. Is that what? Is that the same guy? It sounds like it's probably the same guy, but I don't remember how many I'm so people curious. were killed. Hold on, it? let's just check. I'm pretty sure it's the same guy. <laughs> Do you remember what the documentary is No. Yes. Yes, that's him. Yes, that's <laughs> He is him. crazy looking. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god, that's crazy. I didn't know there was a documentary about him. But what he is was it's Dan, on Netflix. He was Dan Lafferty's cellmate. That's crazy. So that's basically the end of this story, but I would be remiss if I didn't touch on the current state of the FLDS. And as you know, they are still led by the perverted prophet Warren Jeffs, who is mm-hmm. still leading the FLDS via prison. Be a prison phone. Oh my god, that picture of him. I did a buttload of research on him too. Why does it look like his elbows are so do you Ew. see do you see how long his upper arm is? Yeah, and then... probably because he's inbred. Yeah. That's one crazy thing about that FDLS FLDS, like those that live in those cities that are on the border of Colorado and Arizona. A lot of them have the same last name. It's sick. Yeah. Well, they also have a lot of genetic abnormalities because they're inbred. Mm-hmm. And there's like graves of children that didn't live because of their fucking abnormal abnormalities. Fucking gross. That are like basically unmarked and But who cares? I mean, just as long as you have more than three wives, you're gonna have a fucking planet dedicated mm-hmm. to you and be a god. So <laughs> <laughs> Um, so as we were talking about earlier on the break, not sure what's going on, but there are like 500 documentaries about the FLDS or Mormonism right now. It just so happened to happen as soon as I started researching it. It's Mm -hmm. crazy. That's why it was really complicated for me to like write this up. Um, a long ass time ago, we watched a documentary on Warren Jeffs called Prophets Pray, but... There's a new docu-series on Netflix called Keep Sweet, Pray, and Obey. I can't wait to watch that. And I totally recommend it. Did you watch the entire thing? I did. Keep sweet. Keep sweet. Keep sweet. <laughs> As I said, I've done tons of research on the FLDS, Rulon Jeffs, and Warren Jeffs, so if there's any interest in that, I could cover it. Although I am kind of sick of it. But if you like, I could do. Um, but I think this is long enough, so I'm going to stop here. I remember I was going to write an entire... when I, I, I wanted to make a blog about essentially what we're doing now. Is like Oh, yeah. What was it called? Um, R.I.P. Your, R.I.P. After- your yeah. Afternoon. Yeah. Um, never, <laughs> never really followed through on it, but that was going to be my first blog post was the Warren Jeffs thing. You never got to your first blog post? <laughs> no, I made one. 
I made one post, but it was the introductory post. You never got to your second post. Oh my god. R.I.P. 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 Do it then. No, dude, we're like doing it already in a podcast form. I mean, like you can do a podcast of it. Oh, don't look at me. Oh boy. Anyway, my sources. Yes. A goddamn book, which I'm never reading a book again. <laughs> God. Under the Banner of Heaven by John Krakow. I don't know how you say it. Okay. Yeah. I can't keep reading books, guys. It's stressful for me. Quit reading. Um, Deseret News, which I have used as a source before in my Susan Powell story and... Mm-hmm. I didn't know this, but they are a Mormon publication. Yes, they are. But they're really good. Yeah. <laughs> um, St. Louis Tribune, Grunge, Wikipedia, and uh, The Netline. <laughs> <laughs> Guys. Why did you say it like that? I don't know. <laughs> Because I'm trying to read URLs and it's like hard to read. I wish you guys could see Ashley's expressions too. <laughs> They're ugly. <laughs> Hilarious. Oh my god. This would be so much better as a video podcast. Ew. <laughs> I would get hate mail for my face. No, you wouldn't. Be <sighs> hilarious. Um, I feel like this sucked. <laughs> it didn't suck. I liked it. Okay. I I wasn't expecting a murder to happen out of this. Really? No, it was not. At all. It's so sad. It is really sad. And can I just be honest? Um, there's mm-hmm. a show based on this book I read, Under the Banner of Heaven, on Hulu. And I've tried watching it. I don't know, guys. I don't really like when they make shows based on murders that are like where they have actors and there's kind of like things that aren't true and things that are true do you know what i mean it's like based on true events yes but like family still watches it and they're like what the fuck are you doing you're talking about my fucking sister yeah because they're still using like the name of the person it's their life and they're like fucking making shit up yeah that's stupid i just don't I don't know. Like, it's not even entertaining for me at that point. I much prefer a documentary. Same. Anyway, I did want to say thank you to the Let's Go to Court Discord girlies. Oh, my God. Who, um, I mean, who have been listening to our podcast because, I mean, people were asking for podcast recommendations, so I bit remiss not to give y'all. Yeah. Y'all. Yeah. I'm not part of it because I... <laughs> I don't know. I just she's about to be part of it. <laughs> just haven't done it yet. Um, but holy shit, I can't believe. First of all, Kristen listened to Christian one of at least one of our episodes. Yeah, and she was the only one to say shellfish. Nobody which... else. Well, our friend Melissa said shellfish, but it, we said specifically that it does not count if we know you. So yeah. <laughs> I was fangirling so hard when Kristen responded. And like, like just basically said that she was entertained by the podcast. I when I saw the comment, I um, kind of jerked in an odd way, and I pulled a muscle in my neck. Oh God! And it hurt for like several days. But I was like, I was like, this hurts. It's worth it. Anyway, that sounds really creepy. 
But anyway. It's cool. Yeah. I'm excited that somebody loved the art. Yeah. Mallory did the art. Mallory is a great artist, and she made the illustration that you... um, you look at every day when you listen to Why, well, yes, I did. She's great. So, yeah. You can follow us on Instagram. Yes, you can. And you can also follow us on Twitter, even though, guess what? Ashley and I are the only followers on Twitter. <laughs> I never get on Twitter unless there's, like, something crazy happening and I need to, like, I don't know. Yeah. Um... <laughs> But we have a Facebook group. We've had several new members recently from the I know. Discord. I was wondering why. That, that was from the Discord? I think so. I think that, yeah, that makes sense. Um, we've also had several case recommendations that I haven't shared with Mallory yet. So I will have to put that in our shared Woo! doc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we haven't received a review in a while. So if you guys feel so inclined, if you are reaching out and saying you like the podcast, why don't you prove it? Prove it! Prove it, bitch! <laughs> If you have any criticism, though, please email it to us. You don't have to prove it if you hate us. <laughs> you can prove it in an email. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, bye. <laughs> See y'all later. Love you. Goodbye. Love you so much. Keep sweet. Keep sweet. Keep sweet. Goodbye. <laughs>